Good morning. My name's Anthony. I'm the lead pastor at Valley Hope. This morning we are uh, finishing a short series on the Lord's Prayer. Um, we've, this will be the fourth week on it, and uh, hopefully um, you found a small group to be a part of. If not, we'd love to help you do that. Uh, we're spending time this fall grounding ourselves in the teachings of Jesus' kingdom. And so we want to talk about these things on Sunday, but then we want to ground them into our lives and what it actually looks like to be the kind of people that pray these kind of prayers and live this kind of life. So if, you, uh, if you'd like to find a small group this semester, we'd love to help you f- find one of those. Um, I think we should, before we do this, we should stop and just pray together for, for the many people who have been affected by the hurricanes in, in Houston uh, and then in the Caribbean and up, up through Florida. Um, I know that I have family in Florida. My, that's where my family is from. That's where I was born. Uh, so certainly I'm, I'm thinking of them. We want to just pray that God would be merciful and spare lives, first of all, and then that people would be able to rebuild from, from the rubble. So uh, if you would, would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we, we look to you not nearly as often as we should. We often live our lives secure in our own competency, that we can handle life. But there are things that run into our lives that remind us that we are not nearly as in control as we like to believe. God, we pray that the people of Texas and Florida and the Caribbean would sense that they need You, that they would have a real glimpse of the truth, that they need Your protection, they need Your care. We ask, God, that in the path of Hurricane Irma, that You would would shelter people, that You would preserve lives, and that, God, when the storm passes, when it clears, You would give them hope as they do the long, slow work of putting their lives back together. God, You you are the master of heaven and earth. Nothing is outside of Your control. We don't know why terrible things like this happen. We do believe it is not as it ought to be. We long for a place and a time when such things are not known among the people of the earth. So God, we we pray that You would miraculously dissolve this storm, that You would turn it aside away from population centers, that You would preserve those who are in the midst of it. And God, even in the midst of people rebuilding, I pray that You would be apparent that you would be visible in the hands and feet of your of your church who are there to serve to love and to care 
God, let us be faithful servants to reflect your character. Pray, God, that you'd be with us in this room this morning, that our ears would be attuned to your voice. I pray that we might be pierced by your word, though there would be a gracious wounding in us as we are drawn to the ultimate healing that we find in you. We ask that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit to the magnification of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read uh, all of Isaiah chapter 59. It's 21 verses. It will be on the screen behind me, and there are two distinct kind of sections here in Isaiah 59, but it's best just to hear it all together. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, 
and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 59 is a two-part prophecy. One is a statement of the way things are in Israel, and then there's a turn and a statement of the way things will be. The first is pretty graphic and grim. It's fairly depressing. Everything is really bad, if I could just sum up there. Everything is really bad. Israel is supposed to be a particular kind of people in the world. Israel is supposed to be the kind of people that the rest of the nations look at and says, oh, this is what the God of Israel is like. Their, their people are teaching us in their conduct. And yet, apparently in Isaiah's day, they are far from what they are meant to be. They do not adequately reflect what the character of God is. And there's this extended diagnosis of what that looks like. There is violence and deceit. Justice is longed for but nowhere found. And Isaiah does not hesitate to paint everyone with this brush. He doesn't hesitate to say that the blood is on everyone's hands. The lies are on everyone's mouth. The transgression has separated everyone from God. And the Lord, in the second half of the passage, looks on the state of, the th- of things. And he's, it's like there's this su- surprise, this dismay. There is no one, there is no man to stand up and, and even intercede for Israel. So he takes upon himself the burden of justice and redemption. And the chapter ends, this prophecy ends with a promise that God will make things right and will do Himself what the people of Israel could not do for themselves. Jesus is teaching this prayer to to His disciples and to us, His people. And the final petitions that he, He teaches us to pray is that we would not be led into temptation and that we would be delivered from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us for evil. 
And it's a strange kind of, of double petition. If you just read the words, it, it kind of sounds like we should be afraid that God might lead us and, and tempt us. And that's not what he's saying. Jesus is not saying, be careful because God wants to like dig out pitfalls for you and sort of gleefully watch you fall and fail. Jesus' brother, James, in his epistle, will address just this kind of idea in chapter 1 of his letter. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God is not the one who is in Isaiah 59 or in the Lord's Prayer, the one who is the agent of temptation. But Jesus, when he prays this prayer, when Isaiah writes his prophecy, they are speaking to a universal phenomenon. That is us being tempted by our natural cravings. Now, we have good cravings, too. Isaiah 59 speaks of us longing for justice, longing for righteousness. And yet the same people in Isaiah 59 who are longing for justice and longing for righteousness are also their own agents of injustice and unrighteousness. And so we have within us these conflicting desires. And Jesus does not give us a therapeutic self-help prayer that says, God, help us remember how good we really are. Let us, let us be our better nature. Let us overcome by the power of our good sensibilities. He instead acknowledges the reality that is within all of us. We are people prone to temptation. There is within us a beast that is hungry. And there is without us a beast that stalks us. People are most comfortable discussing evil as the thing that is outside because this is the easiest one to identify. Evil is all that stuff that I see on the news. Evil can take a number of shapes, murder, theft, abuse, terrible deception that bankrupts people. We can look outside of ourselves and very clearly pinpoint that is evil. And our, our instinct, most people's instinct, is rightly, somebody should do something about that. And we all come up with a variety of answers of who that someone is. Some people take it upon themselves personally. I must personally end that evil out there. Some say, this is a government needs to step in and end this evil. A universal, nearly universal human reaction is that God should do something about that evil. 
But everybody kind of agrees there is bad stuff in the world and somebody should do something about all of that bad stuff out there. It is really bad and I don't like it. When you kind of follow the the line, you follow the cord of evil, you follow it all the way back to where evil came from, and those individual strands of evil alarmingly end up on the inside of real human people. So then the question is, do you and I rightly recognize that the evil that we see projected out into the world that we hate has its own relative connections to us in the interior of our lives. We are far more comfortable naming as evil what is outside of us and getting worked up and, and frothing at the mouth that someone should do something about this. But when we are dealing with our own interior world, things aren't as clear all of a sudden. Well, Nobody's perfect. Is it really so bad that I think this way or feel this way? Is it really so bad that my appetites are this and sometimes I feed my appetites? That's that's just me having weaknesses. But those people out there, those people are evil. The line only seems to actually get blurry when we are talking about ourselves. And in fact, we treat these interior appetites as not that big of a deal until they manifest in somebody else. And Isaiah is here indicting the people of Israel because of the state of their interior world. It's not just that everybody in Israel is a murderer. Let me read what he says. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. And he says in verse 7, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. And this matches what James says in chapter 1. The chain of evil that leads to death and destruction begins in the appetites of our souls. Temptation gives birth to sin, which when it reaches fruition, leads to death. There is no evil in your life or in mine that left unguarded, unrestrained will not kill you. There is nothing about your life or about my life, about the interior of our souls that does not slightly trouble us, that will not ultimately left untended consume who we are 
until people on the outside look at us and say, there's that evil. That's the evil one. But see, this is not how we treat ourselves, is it? The problem, I, I, from my experience in my own life, and in my life growing up in the church, is that we are far better at, at pronouncing judgment on others than we are about recognizing the own imminent danger perching on the ledges of our hearts. We are far better at looking at other people and saying, I am not like them, than holding ourselves up to the measuring stick of evil and saying, I am on the path to death. And, and I have to say that I have experienced this in real and scary ways in my own life where I have suddenly felt, oh my goodness, I am on the verge of destruction here. I've had to go to my life transformation group partners and tell them, I feel like I am one bad day away from being a porn addict. I, I had no visible proof for that. I, I wasn't giving myself over to that, but my appetites, I could recognize that I was just being comfortable and, and letting lust be a part of my heart. And I could, I could turn this into any number of sins. I could go to my life transformation group and say, I am a bad day from being a murderer. I am a bad day from being so obsessed with myself so in need of affirmation and feedback that I could be looking at my phone and I am one terrible moment away from swerving and hitting somebody with my car because my appetite for affirmation is so strong that I can't stop searching for feedback and approval. Most of the time, I live my life saying, I'm pretty good. I feel pretty all right. But there have been moments in my life where God has sort of shaken me awake and said, you are not playing with little puppies of sin here. You are playing with the adder, with the spider, with the prowling lion. And if you do not treat it as such, it will kill you. Peter will, will write to a church that is in the face of real persecution. That they could in any moment be actually and literally killed. When they pray Jesus' prayer for, for being delivered from the evil one, they, they definitely have a physical enemy in mind. And Peter does not say, you know what? You're basically fine. Don't worry. At the end of his letter, he tells them to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, which is a comfort 
as much as a command. But he also tells them the truth. The devil is prowling around like a hungry lion ready to devour you. This is, this is not the, and maybe you grew up in a church background like, like I did, this is not the, the supernatural thriller movie spirituality that you can often hear in a church like where are the demons and let's go demon hunting and like everything is a demon's fault. This is not the, the strange paranoia driven ghost stories that we're talking about. But it's easy as Westerners, as people who believe that basically the things that are real are the things that we can see, and, and maybe we can throw God into that picture, but the idea that there is actual real evil prowling in the world with an intention to kill you, that's kind of a nonsense, old, middle-aged belief. But the Bible is not really accommodating to our Western sensibilities and doesn't really care if you think that it is silly. In fact, most of the rest of the world would look at you and me and say, no, you're, you're silly. Of course, there is embodied evil seeking to devour you in the world. And we have to recognize as Westerners that the temptation for us will not, probably not be to be paranoid of demons behind every bush. Our temptation will probably be there, is de- there are demons behind no bushes. There is no prowling lion. There is me and my own emotional difficulties, some of which I should work out through counseling or medication or friendship. And then there is God, and that's all there is. But that is not a biblical view of the world. I say this to you not to make you terrified of what, go bumps, what goes bump in the night. I say this to you because if you recognize these appetites and dark tendencies in your own soul, then you should take seriously that there is someone out in the world that would like to feed those dark appetites of your soul. That the world is not neutral before you. That oftentimes things that you will come in contact with are trying to find you in a place of death. This is the, the sort of end game of the middle part of Isaiah, Isaiah 59. There is death everywhere in Israel. Things are grim and bad. If you will, it is what happens when all of the people start feeding these dark appetites and those little imperfections that you think are just cuddly sin puppies have become full-grown monsters unchained in your soul. And we are still the people Though we keep these monsters as pets, we are still also the people who look at a world that is broken and saying, we wish it was otherwise. And if we're honest, we say we wish it was otherwise, not just out there, but we wish it was otherwise in here.
We long for justice and righteousness. We want to pray Jesus' prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us away from temptation and deliver us. The answer in Isaiah 59 and indeed the rest of the story is that you actually do need a hero. Our, our stories for all of time make place for the hero. Now, our stories as a culture are trending more and more towards the creation of anti-heroes, and that's its own kind of thing that we could diagnose and talk about sometime. But for all of human history, we build, we write, we enact stories that have the place for the hero. And we are, we are set up to look at our own story, to look at the story of creation, and to long for heroic rescue. And Isaiah 59 is, so, is no different. Everything is pitch black darkness. We stumble around in the daylight like it was twilight. We grope around for the walls like the blind man trying to find his way. And what does the God of Israel do but say that there must be a hero? And there is no one to be heroic except the one that does not have within him all of these monsters unchained. God Himself that writes the story does not make you the hero of your own transformation. God does not make me the hero of my own story those days when I recognize that I'm, that I'm a day away from pornography addiction or from murder or from maybe not murder but distractedly killing someone anyway, when I realize that I am teetering on the brink, the answer from God is not be a better version of yourself. Buckle down and do better. Pull from within you the answer to the problem. That is the kind of answer that we naturally reach for. Our reaction, whether you are Christian or non-Christian, religious or non-religious, your instinct is to pull from within inside yourself and be a better person. Get a better habit, get a better pattern, read a better book, and just do better. Be a better you. But the diagnosis in Isaiah 59 is that you are the problem. The well that you are pulling from is a poisoned well. And you cannot solve the problem yourself. You cannot be the hero. And there are many of us in this room who have faced or are facing real addiction and you know this to be true so personally that you have tried so hard to just be better, and yet you find yourself here again another morning being a failure. Riding into the darkness and seeming hopelessness of this situation is the God who intends to be the hero. 
and is the only one who finds himself capable to be the hero. It says he, he puts on his helmet of salvation and his breastplate of righteousness, this warfare image, imagery that Paul will play off later in the book of Ephesians. And he rides into this mess to bring deliverance, to bring justice, to bring righteousness. His answer is not a program of self-improvement. The answer is that He comes to save and deliver. God is the only one that can lead you away from temptation. God is the only one that can deliver you from evil. And you can make good habits and you can confess your sin regularly and you can try as hard as you can and you should because this is evil that you should be avoiding. But the only one that can actually deliver you from the power of an in transgression is the one whom you have sinned against. We have naturally built up walls from the inside out against the Creator God and the only one that can tear those walls down is not us who built it, but the one whom we built them against. And God rides into the story And we expect God to come and do what we want to do. We expect God to grab evil by the throat and throttle it in front of us. But God knows that we are on the side of evil, that evil itself has connections in our own desire, in our own dark needs. The, own, the things that are on the inside of us are on the team of evil. So if God rides in to throttle evil, to grab it by the throat, to wring its neck and to kill it, we will be the ones killed as well. So instead of grabbing evil by the throat and wrenching its neck and destroying it in a moment. God allows all of our darkest appetites to consume Him. The cross of Jesus is the moment when everything that we fear and hate inside of ourselves Everything that we fear and hate outside of ourselves is allowed to grow into its fullest, darkest form and to swallow the Son of God on the cross. God deals with evil by letting evil kill Him and then destroying evil from the inside out. When Jesus is swallowed by the grave and into the belly of the beast. He brings that full and final destruction of this enemy that enslaves and tortures us from the inside out. He bursts out from the grave and opens a way through the death that we ourselves have made and wrought upon the world and steps out with his feet and on to the head of the serpent that would poison us again and again. 
and grinds his head into the dust and offers for us liberty, redemption, reconciliation between us and the one whom we built the wall against. The kingdom that is Jesus's is marked by this power, by a love that would allow Himself to be consumed by evil that we might be freed from it. So the thing that you and I wrestle against and fight to keep contained for so much of our life is not better off left hidden and unspoken. It is better off brought into the light that we might tell ourselves once again and again and again that even that thing that is so disturbing and disgusting about you was not enough to put off God from coming into the story to rescue and redeem you. And even in this thing, God will triumph and free you. We kingdom people are not meant to be people hiding in the dark, fearing what goes bump in the night. We kingdom people are people that see in light of the Son of God and see His triumph worked out in our lives over the long course of our days. And if you are caught this morning in the snare of sin, if you cannot shake its grip on you, I am here to tell you bad news and good news. You never will shake it if you are the only one doing the shaking. The good news is, if you are caught in the snare of sin this morning, there is a God who can and will free you. And you are not meant to do battle against this prowling lion all by yourself. You think that you are better off by hiding because you are afraid of the shame of being known in your, in your sinfulness. But that shame is a prison that you will never escape. And if you will come into the light and throw yourself openly at the foot of the cross, and if you will expose yourself to people around you, you will see that the light of the Son of God will come in and break the power of that sin. Maybe not in a moment. You won't be fully transformed and changed. I cannot promise that. But over the long course of your life, the light of the Son of God does its work and the dragon is crushed day by day, if you are trapped in sin this morning, I beg you, I plead with you, stop trying to control this beast yourself. It will not work. And you do not need to be hopeless any longer. If you have seen Jesus, and you have reduced His story to a small part of your life because you come to church on Sunday and you wear His name on some forms as a Christian. And you've forgotten how treacherous and dangerous the power of sin is and you've reduced all of this to a nice religious fairy tale. 
this morning, I would invite you to re-see the cross. To see again the great love of God for His people. To see again this story where the real hero that we all long for is standing before you in blazing, majestic, uncovered beauty. And that this is a thing that should never grow old and stale in our hearts. This is something that should ravish our hearts and captivate us again and again and again. That God, the God, rode into our stories to do what we could not do for ourselves. To undo the wall that we built with our own hands. And that is never old. It is never stale. It is never plain or shallow or plastic or fake. It is the God unrivaled standing in our midst, present with His people. Glory to God. The Gospel is good news. And it will always be good news. It is not a decision you make once in your life. God tells you to figure it out after that. It is good news yesterday, today, and forever. People of God, remember the good news. Remember that He has come to deliver us. And He surely will do it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we confess the truth about ourselves that our thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. That without trying, there is some factory of darkness inside of us. There are things about our interior world that, that we hate. And some of us think that if we just keep it on the inside, then it's not a big deal. And some of us cannot stop thinking about how terrible our thoughts are. And in the midst of all of that mess is this hunger for justice and righteousness that works from the inside out. We are a mess, God. That is the truth. But you are great and glorious. You have invited us to pray again and again that we be led away from temptation and be delivered from evil. Your kingdom is marked by your cross, Lord God. And I pray that we would have a fresh vision of it. I pray, God, that people who are enticed and ensnared by sin would see the beckoning of God in the cross and would find the freedom that they crave there. I pray, God, that You would send them friends, that You would send people to walk with them in the long process of that deliverance until that day that we might see You face to face. I pray, God, that You might forgive us, Your people, who as the psalm reference that we read this morning, who have seen the wondrous works that You have done in Egypt, and we have forgotten. We have made small and stale what is always big and fresh. 
You are a great God. You have done great things. God, we ask that you would continue to do great things in our hearts, in our lives, and in our world. That evil from the inside out would be fully and finally vanquished. That you would wipe every tear from our eyes. And that our cities would be light up, lit up with the light of your face. We look forward to that day, Lord Jesus, with everything that is in us. Magnify yourself in the perseverance of your people until that day. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.